Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Season 2 of Solar Punk Presence. The podcast where we introduce you to the people, projects, and ideas that help us create a solar punk future in the present. Which is to say, a cleaner, greener, more just, and sustainable world. My name's Ariel, and I live in a city in Canada in a 12-story apartment building that overlooks a parking lot beside a busy four-lane road. And I'm Christina, and I live in half of what used to be a barn on what used to be a family farm in the middle of farm country in northern Germany. And we are both trying to figure out how to live more solar punk lives. And what that even means. And we're both a little bit envious of each other's situations. Well, I'm not sure I'm envious of city life, but I definitely think it's got more potential to be solar punk than what I'm doing out here, which is taking up a lot more than my fair share of Earth's land surface out in the countryside. So we thought to open up season two, we'd have a little debate. Urban solar punk versus rural solar punk. I'm team urban because I live in the countryside and can totally see the disadvantages of trying to be solar punk out here and the advantages of trying to be solar punk in the city. And I'm team rural because I see it exactly the other way around. So let me explain. When I first discovered solar punk, it was through Tumblr, which is a very image heavy website. And so I was influenced very much by the solar punk aesthetic back then, as it is actually now. I see a lot of solar punk images as a sort of cottagecore for everyone type of vibe that generates imagined utopic spaces that are away from the city, that are in a small cottage or at most a small town, a small community of houses that are made of natural materials and living in harmony with the natural world around you whether that's the woodland, the prairies, yeah, and, you know, dressing in natural clothing, such as linen and organic cotton, all this stuff that is biodegradable and not only feels nice, but is produced sustainably and so is nice for the people and planet with which we live. And it gets people back in touch with themselves, with the earth, the seasons, and with nature. People who are living in a rural setting have to live seasonally a lot more. Well, they don't have to have to because of modern technology and the conveniences thereof, but it is more in keeping with the rhythms of the seasons and depending on how much of said technology that you have integrated into your life might be more difficult during certain times of the year to access food or water or community. And so living seasonally and within our means is not only important to us as individual solar punks, but it breaks us out of our self-contained mythos of self-reliance and forces us to rely on community and talk to our neighbors, acknowledge that, hey, life is hard, but it's easier with others. And we're all connected, human and non-human alike. And we have to be connected in order to survive and thrive. When you're living rurally on your own, you can't do everything. There's no way that it's possible for you to provide everything that you need to live a comfortable life 
by yourself. Uh, there needs to be that community reliance. You need to know your neighbors, even if your neighbors are living, say, 20 kilometers away. But my other point is that having having chickens and growing vegetables yourself, that sort of ideal breaks you out of these capitalist structures and industrial agriculture a bit. It helps people to imagine a place outside of capitalism. It might be that our imagination is just regressing to imagine a sort of feudalistic way of life because we're familiar with that from history. And so that is the most comfortable for us to go back to as opposed to imagining something else that we have no template for. Uh, going back historically to this feudalistic way of life, but with modern conveniences and social modern conveniences and social justice. It's important for a lot of folks who feel absolutely trapped by and ground down under the boot heels of the current economic system and don't feel like there's any way to get out of it or to get outside of it. And this imaginative space of the rural solar punk life is outside of that. It is it might be as far away as Narnia is from the real world, to be honest, but it's very important for people to have something to imagine outside of the current economic system. The cottage core for all dreams sets itself away from the city, away from the centers of commerce and reminders of capitalism and wealth inequality. And it's a physical distancing from or sort of imaginative unsubscribing from that way of life. And I think it's pretty important that way. Wow. Okay. Well, there's a lot of ideas there. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> for some reason, you had me thinking of Soylent Green and what an awful city that was. And mm -hmm. yeah, anyways, never mind. So how am I going to reply to that? I guess we'll start with, with the, the pretty aesthetic of solar punk, because that is really quite at the heart of solar punk in some respects. But at the same time, solar punk is more than an aesthetic. Solar punk is also about how to live better, more sustainable lives that tread less heavily upon the earth and its ecosystems. I'm not sure that hogging up a lot of space in the countryside achieves that better than taking up way less space in a city. Speaking from personal experience, having chickens and growing vegetables is an insane amount of work, and it takes up more space than it needs to, right? If you leave it to the professionals, they get it done, well, uh, intensively, which means shoving everything together in very small spaces. Bad for the chickens, perhaps better for the earth, that's debatable. So why not dream instead of vertical hydroponic vegetable gardens that have a much smaller footprint and give our garden space back to nature? And while keeping chickens as a hobby, as I said, is nicer for the chickens than life in one of those horrible overcrowded facilities, there are still pound for pound three times more chickens on earth than all wild birds put together. At a time when wild bird populations are collapsing toward extinction, is that something we want to contribute to by hosting chickens in our own personal gardens instead of wild birds? Yeah. Um, yeah, getting in touch with the earth. Yeah, that is that would be good for everybody. It would be good for the earth as well. Perhaps we would start taking care of it a little bit better than we have been. But that being said, we can live seasonally and within our means more easily in cities where there is public transportation, where we can walk everywhere or bike everywhere. So cities lend themselves to community activities and shared endeavors, far more so than isolated living situations in the countryside. You can join clubs, you can go to the, the gym very easily, um, you can go out and work in community gardens, you can go to the park or the playground. And living in the countryside, I can tell you nobody's self-reliant out here. 
we all get our power from power companies just like everybody else does, you know, except for people who have solar panels. And even then, most of them are still connected to the grid. We also all shop in grocery stores. We have dogs who maybe you can hear barking right now. Hopefully not. Um, (laughs) We also all order from Amazon. Well, okay, not me personally, at least not in the last 15 years. But I, I get stuff delivered just like everybody else. And honestly, we all hate our neighbors as much as people in the city. We don't do any less bickering with the neighbors that we have. Yeah, sure. You have neighbors you can count on if you need help. And then there's the rest of them. Um, So people are people no matter where you are. I mean, those are all really good points. Um, But I do want to emphasize the merits of dreaming because it leads to discussions like this. It inspires us to do better and to be better along the way towards what we want. And so it's very important that we have these kinds of conversations with people who live in different situations so that we can maybe realize the realities of what the dreams actually are. In any case, Well, I have to say, I do live out in the countryside, so I'm not going to harp on anybody who wants to dream about living in the countryside. I just, yeah, you know, I'm happy to throw cold water on the idealistic aspects of the dream because that's the kind of meanie that I am. Yeah, well, I mean, I also am going to throw some cold water on the dream of a uh, urban solar punk life. (laughs) Sell me on the dream of the the urban solar punk life though Christina tell me what's so great about it you know so i'm relatively new to solar punk and a lot of what i've seen of it has been the art and the art is generally urban i mean you know very green but urban and this is what i've picked up from the art of solar punk if most of us lived in cities in enormous buildings that reach up toward the sky We could reduce humanity's footprint on the land and return so much more of the earth to nature for rewilding. Among other things, this would sequester a lot of carbon dioxide um, as those ecosystems regrow. Um, So uh, one thing I so I'm working on a book right now, um, and one of the things I've stumbled across by reading the scientific literature is that in the last two thousand years, the earth has lost literally half of its biomass. You know, maybe slightly less than that, but we can call it, we can round it up to half. So again, in the last 2000 years, and it's simply because we've slashed and burned our way through those ecosystems, like forests and swamplands and all sorts of other things, and converted them to farmlands and other human-centric use, like roads and cities and parking lots. Um, so if we gave huge amounts of the earth back, these ecosystems would regrow, they would produce more biomass, you would start to store carbon in the soils. And this could help to halt or maybe even reverse the precipitous loss of wildlife. Um, It would also help remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and altogether perhaps bring an end to the mass extinction in progress. Mm -hmm. This effect would be amplified if we also urbanized some of our agriculture, running it upwards in vertical farms, perhaps along the sides of some of these buildings, rather than out over the ground. Mm -hmm. So I also think living in cities is a great way to foster community in ways that it is far more difficult if you're living alone spread out in the countryside, as I mentioned earlier. Um, You can meet people in communal spaces like parks and work with them together again in community gardens. And I think living in close concentration with a lot of other people is ultimately the more human way to live Mm -hmm. rather than as a grumpy semi-survivalist who fends Mm -hmm. for themselves or their own family and has to protect their property, crops, and livestock from marauders, human, bird, insect, and non-human tetrapod. (laughs) 
So transforming our cities into green, clean, just, and livable spaces is the vision that solarpunk has of the future. At least that's how I see it. I think it is what we should be pouring a lot of our efforts into. Okay. Well, you make very good points, and I want you to let you know that I agree with all of them, um, especially your last point about how clean, green, and just livable cities is the way of the future, and we should be putting our efforts into it as solar punks. But this is a debate episode, so here are my own <laughs> I've got the boxing gloves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> here are my counterpoints to your argument, so get ready. So the world is made up of many different people. Surprise, surprise. I know there are some for whom the solar punk urban life would be torture. So introverts who are forced out of their comfort zones repeatedly in order to access basic necessities, people who dislike children having to live near large families, neurodiverse individuals who are plunged into a world of constant communication where every interaction is a potential minefield to be navigated with exhausting care. Maybe I'm being dramatic, but to me, that sounds like a nightmare, both in terms of mental health and physical health. I don't know if you're being dramatic, but you're making me think that I might be neurodiverse and undiagnosed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, God, that's me. Yeah, I mean, community is great until you're like, oh, I'm really scared of people. And it is exhausting to have conversations with them. So (laughs) are very scary. Yeah, I know. It's it's all very well to say like, well, this will be a solar punk utopia. So everyone will be kind and compassionate and understanding. But like you said, people are people. Even the most open-minded people have bad days. And as a society, I just don't think we're there yet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, speaking as someone who currently lives in an apartment building, my building has thin walls. Mm. I can't even put a bird feeder on the balcony. I'm not allowed to replace my very stainable kitchen counters. Um, present day apartment life is not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. Uh, I've lived in many, many apartments over uh, the past 10 years or so when they've all had varying, uh, shall we say, disadvantages to communal living. <laughs> There's no communal space in this building besides the gym or even building community organizations. That's not encouraged here. I don't know my neighbors and I'm not the kind of person who will seek out face-to-face interaction without an excuse that's given to me by somebody else. So maybe that's on me, but the reality of living communally has so far been a dislikable but necessary experience given my economic position and not something I've been intentional about which I suspect is a situation for a lot of people, especially a lot of younger people who are more likely to be the ones who are forced into these sort of cramped communal living spaces who don't have the economic means or time to go out and meet their neighbors or anything like that. They just want to, you know, work on their careers or their university work and just, you know, focus. Um, So Not to mention there are people who come in all sizes and abilities. So we have to very intentionally build spaces for people who are over six feet tall, as well as people who are under five feet tall and children. Oh my gosh, I have to interrupt because I live in a place that was built for people over six feet tall because this is Northern Germany and everybody Mm -hmm. here is tall and I am like five one. So (laughs) (laughs) I feel this pain. Yeah. It's not just apartment buildings. That's very fair. Yeah, this is, I mean, when I lived in Japan, um, I am, 
I would not consider myself to be tall or big. I'm five, six, but everything in my apartment there was just slightly too small. And so I banged a lot of my body off of different parts of that apartment. Like (laughs) it was kind of ridiculous. Yeah. So that's just something to sort of think about, take into account. Buildings have to be modular and workable, not to mention accessible for people who really use wheelchairs or who are visually impaired. I mean, eventually I hope architecture will compensate and adapt to these realities, but on the way there, I have my doubts. These are things that some people just don't think about because it's difficult to think outside your own experience unless you know somebody or have experienced that challenge yourself. So it's it's difficult to to take that into account when you're say designing an apartment building. Yeah, well, and I think you know, custom customizing things or having lots of different sizes, et cetera, and so forth, it costs money, and so developers oh, yeah. probably are not really interested in that. So it, that that's a capitalism thing. Yeah, in our you know solar punk futuristic society that has a different economic system, this clearly will not be a problem. But until we get there. This is some <laughs> presence. We need to talk about present day issues. And um, I find it difficult to imagine that we might transform our way there when it comes to things like accessible housing. So anyway, that's my that's my cold water on that. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I think here, you know, solar punk is about imagining things. The solar punk story writers need to start writing about this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Is- yeah, and getting yeah. in touch with nature and finding a new way to yeah, and I, get along I love with it the earth. I encounter a story that has a little nod to something like that because not every single story has to address every single issue, but when taken all together, having all these little nods to accessibility or to sort of the the differences between people, I find it very very hopeful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wanted to make a last point um, about uh, people and living with nature and about how people have lived with and within nature for a long time. Um, And I'm taking a page from William (laughs) Cronon here. um, So I'm just laughing because obviously since since we, for as long as we've been a species, presumably, but anyway. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I know. But people tend to have this split, right, between like there's people over here and then there's nature that's somehow over here and never the twain shall meet um, or something like that. Like this sort of human supremacist idea of how people are somehow separate from nature, right? This might be a North American thing. I remember when I moved to Europe, I was a bit shocked because, you know, people live in like what they call national parks or like if you go to India and people just live everywhere. Um, out in all zone wilderness areas, so it may just be in North America that we've we've got this separation of people and quote unquote wilderness. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely sort of reached its pinnacle into North America. Well, I think um, in North America we still have stuff that seems like wilderness. Seems like yes. Um, I mean, Cronon, uh, I I studied him way back. Um, so this, yeah. So you're talking about this article. I think I interrupted you before you could. Yeah. Yeah. You could talk about this article, and um, I just looked it up on the internet, and it was published in what 1995 in the New York Times or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's it's or uh, a New York magazine old, cool. or yeah, but it, it's an oldie but a goodie. Um, he talks about how the concept of wilderness is this myth that 
um, has sort of permeated, well, American, but this more, more sort of North American thought and environmentalist thought for the past couple of hundred years. Um, and how there's no such thing as some sort of pristine wild world that's been untouched by humanity. In fact, there's a horrendous legacy on Turtle Island here of environmental groups using that very definition of wilderness to forcibly uproot entire indigenous communities and relocate them away from valuable wilderness. So, oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah, horrible. A lot of the, like, well, especially in Canada, but a lot of indigenous groups sort of like sacred sites the European explorers came by and were like, ah, yes, wilderness, there can't be people here. And so that's how we created Banff National Park is by taking the indigenous people and saying, you can't go here to do your ceremonies anymore because people shouldn't be here. Um, this is a national park and people don't live here. But oh. like, So did, were, were they being intentionally nasty or? Yeah, there was a lot just of racism. ignorant. There's a lot of racism going on. They They knew. <laughs> <laughs> um it's the same thing actually in america with um probably all the national parks oh specifically i'm thinking about the seven grandfathers um shoot what do you call it it's that that site where they carve people's faces into the mountains mount rushmore yeah yeah mount rushmore is that a and national park i actually have no idea <laughs> i've never I have been no there. idea either whoa hello this is christina breaking in to say that mount rushmore is a national memorial uh, known not as the seven grandfathers, but the six grandfathers to the Lakota people. And I'm not going to attempt to pronounce that in Lakota because I will just slaughter it horribly. Um, and it's located in the Black Hills of South Dakota on land that belongs to the Lakota people, um, but was seized by the U.S. government uh, back in the late 1800s. But I do know that the mountain, it was, you know, a sacred site or whatever. And then the founding fathers came along. Well, not founding fathers. I whoever, think it was just one guy, it was, actually. It was just one crazy guy. Yeah. I mean, one, what a horrible thing to do along. to a mountain. Yeah. And was like, you know what? I'm going to carve people's faces into this mountain. And the indigenous people were like, please don't. And he was like, no, I'm going to do it. So, <laughs> which is a little bit decide besides the point of the whole wilderness myth thing, but I, it's, 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 it's a thing that happened. <laughs> so. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Fine. I've, I've derailed you. Let yeah. me let you get back to what you were yeah. going to say. No, I was just saying, I was just sort of going on about how the myth of wilderness is a pretty dangerous one, um, especially in the sort of 18th and 19th century romanticist kind of idea of like, ah, oh, yes, the wilderness, so beautiful, you know, uh, we need to preserve it at all costs. And by preserve it, we mean, take all the people who were previously living there and get them off of that land. Because that's how we envision wilderness to okay. be. Um, so I, I will agree, that is a pretty crappy thing to do. Yeah. And, and that was informed by a lot of, you know what, I can go on this tangent. Well, I think we I have to have. I think we have to have another episode where we we pick apart this essay and talk about it and talk about all the all the stuff because there's this is it's a really interesting essay. I only skimmed it because it's long and there's clearly a lot of ideas in there. I was I was going to say that this, this is something that if our if our listeners are curious, I can definitely put the link down in our description, and so people can. Um, oh, we definitely should do that. So, yeah, yeah, because it's all over the internet, actually. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to say one thing about it. So I'm I'm a trained biologist. And for me, reading this essay, I was a bit like, whoa, 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 wait a second. And, you know, I understood a lot of the points he was making. But, you know, as a as a PhD biologist, I was like, wait, wait, wilderness is not a myth. 
It's not a myth, okay? The, it's a, as a word, okay? I accept it carries a lot of cultural and psychological baggage that has to do in part with the way we see the world in respect to ourselves. And okay, yeah, that now I understand it has this horrible legacy associated with it. It was used as an excuse to eject people from their, their homelands. And that's no, that's unacceptable. Okay, but ecologically speaking, there are still tracts of land and stretches of ocean with rich, diverse, complex, healthy, and overwhelmingly unmanaged ecosystems in it. So, i.e., that are wilderness. And that's a fact. That is not a myth. Yes, every patch of earth has been affected by human beings at this point. This is true. But not all of it has been degraded beyond uh, recognition. And Cronin actually says that in his essay. And I think there are both qualitatively and quantitatively, these areas are both qualitatively and quantitatively very different from far more degraded, less natural areas um, that also probably happen to be used and inhabited a bit more by people because it kind of goes with the territory. Okay, and this has nothing to do with, not mythological, but a, a mythos involved with the word wilderness. Did I use that word right, mythos? Sorry, I'm not coming yeah. from the humanities. So, <laughs> so. I just want to say, sure, some people can live in nature or even wilderness, quote unquote, and yes, even manage it on a minor scale without destroying it as a species-rich, robust ecosystem, but only a small number of people and with only minimal interference. And so the wilderness as a thing, as an object with certain properties is true in its own right, and it is independent from whatever romantic ideas of wilderness we have as being a sacred, pristine place without people in it that triggers a transcendent experience when you visit it because it's so different from the city or the farmland or whatever. Yeah, That's just what I wanted to say the 1800s there. 1800s were really big on the sublime. So, you know, you go you go into the wilderness and you have the sort of like almost spiritual experience of this sublime that your mind can't comprehend and it was very interesting <laughs> okay well now you just are a billionaire and you take a ride up into you know uh, yeah space, space and look at yeah. earth and go oh, I'm so small. i suppose that's the 21st century version <laughs> of that <laughs> okay so let me throw it back to you ariel i just had to put my two cents yeah. in there yeah of course no that's the nuance that we need um so yeah um, oh i need that on a t-shirt I'm the nuance that you need. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's so important that, you know, people from the humanities and people from the sciences have these discussions because we're both talking about the same thing, but we're also both talking about very different things. Oh, yeah, we're using the same words and they have completely different meanings. Yeah, it is so fascinating. But Isn't yes, it, 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 and it's amazing we don't have more wars. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Really, how do diplomats do it? I mean, when you're talking to people from different cultures, I mean, it's... The I... more I speak to to like more, uh, the more I am sort of interdisciplinarily communicative, the more respect that I have for diplomats. Like, I'm just like, wow, your job is super hard. When I was a kid, I was like, oh yeah, they just talk to people. And now I'm like, no, they they work magic. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you can start to understand why legal documents having to so, have so many words in them because you have to define yeah. everything. And can't and be easy. Words have to be so very precise. Yeah. I mean, no wonder it's unreadable. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah let's put a pin on in this for it perhaps another episode definitely or two yeah <laughs> and the problems with postmodernism. but anyway never mind <laughs> that's a whole other <laughs> in turn in a in a word so 
But let's get back to the topic. So uh, let's pivot a bit and talk uh, urban solar punk and rural solar punk literature. When I was thinking of solar punk literature, I uh, was thinking about solar punk and solar punk adjacent literature. I mean, it's not really solar punk per se, although, I mean, I think the author wouldn't say it is solar punk, but we as solar punks have claimed it is New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson, which is relentlessly urban. I mean, it takes place in New York in 2140, but it very much lays the groundwork for a lot of solar punk themes, such as communal living and dealing with climate catastrophes, adaptation, resilience, taking down capitalist economic structures, <laughs> species um, uh, a survival and and uh yeah it's a fun book i have actually read it um (laughs) i actually bought it not from kim stanley robinson himself but from from the little table next to he came and gave a talk at the klima house in premerhofen back in 2017 i think it was yeah 2017 and we drove the four hours over there and to go listen to him he was a really great guy to listen to he's really interesting also very gracious so i got him to sign my old copy of i yeah i don't have red mars because i've bought it so many times and given it to people <laughs> to read i no longer have a copy of it so i oh, think right. i made him i made him sign blue mars probably uh-huh. i still have that one that's awesome i listened to it actually as an audio book which is really really cool because it's a book that as each chapter is from a different person's point of view and in the audiobook version, there is a different narrator for each chapter um, or, or a different narrator for each character. And so slipping into that person's voice was really, really immersive. And I really liked it. Oh, uh, okay. It was a great production. Yeah, I listen to a lot of audiobooks lately. And um, I would say that that one stands out, uh, not just because the story was so great, but also because the performance was so great. Uh, okay. But getting back to solar punk stories and literature. Uh, well, I mean, as as an example of urban solar punk, I mean, it's lacking the the pretty aesthetic part of solar punk. It was pretty gritty future it, New York, if I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something, though, that we should think about. I mean, I think it's a side effect of the vehicle for the story, because, I mean, you're not going to find pictures in a novel. Uh, but also it doesn't have, I'm thinking of J.R.R. Tolkien's, you know, descriptions of forests in the Lord of the Rings, and it, it doesn't have that. Um, just that's a different writing style, and that's fine. Well, and I suspect that Kim Stanley Robinson would think, yeah, the solar punk aesthetic is nice, but, you know, it's an aesthetic, and yeah. he's not right into that. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I mean, another one uh, that's very urban and also similarly doesn't really have a whole lot of focus on aesthetic is the Boston Hearth Project, which is a short story by T.X. Watson, which I wrote an entire paper about. So it always comes to mind whenever I'm talking about solar punk stories. So apologies if I've said this before. Um, No, you haven't. So tell us about it because I I don't know this story. Ah, okay. Well, it's... um, I mean, it's called the Boston Hearth Project. It happens in Boston, I believe, in 2023. It's it's a it's a near future solar punk story. I mean, it came out it came out pre pandemic. 
Ah, um, no, wait. We did talk about this one at the begin at the very first episode of season yes. one. So, yeah, you can still yeah. refresh my memory on it. Uh, very quickly, it's about a near future heist, uh, wherein the group of protagonists try to well, try and succeed in taking over a new smart building in the downtown core of Boston that instead of its intended use to be a gathering place for the rich and and wealthy and people who are coming from all over to have conferences and political rallies, it's instead they want they hack the building and use its internal support systems because it is a smart building. It's got solar panels, it's self-sufficient, it has an air filtration system with algae in it and a thermal regulation system that is naturally powered naturally. It's been a while since I've read this story. Okay, <laughs> no, but I I realize I Anyways, went but it's it, on it must be on the internet because I did go and read it after we talked about it in our first episode ever. Of course, I don't remember any of the details. Um so <laughs> you're doing better than I am. So well, but we should be sure to put a link Yes, yeah. Yeah. Because it was it was interesting. It's it's very interesting because they take it over and uh they use the building as a homeless shelter actually for the city's unhoused. Because climate change is beginning to make winters more and more severe, and uh due to policy, there is less and less place for the houseless to take shelter during those uh extreme weather events. They turn this hearth building, I believe it's called, into a gigantic sort of communal living space. Okay. And it, it, I mean, it exemplifies the theme of infrastructure as resistance to the way that things are. It turns the building from being a celebration of techno-capitalism into a place that can foster human connection and human Thriving. survival yeah yeah, yeah. Well, but then that's great so that's a really perfect visualization a fictional visualization of a of an of a solar punk urban future yeah yeah and it's very i mean i think it very much resonates with the you know it's not in some you know like far-flung future it's in the here and now it's uh to borrow the the cyberpunk phrase it's 15 minutes into the future it's something that's very, very doable now with the technology that mm -hmm. we have. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Anyways, it's very urban. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to shout out um, Solar Punk. It's an anthology called Solar Punk Ecological and Fantastical Stories in a Sustainable World. And it first was published in 2012 in Brazil by Gerson Lodi Ribeiro. It was translated to English by Fabio Fernandez and published in the United States through World Weaver Press in 2018. And it's this anthology of Brazilian solar punk stories that are very, very urban, but it's urban in a way that we perhaps in North America wouldn't really recognize as urban in the same way that our cities are urban. No, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, one of the stories, for example, uh, it takes place in a city that is a very high-tech city of Mayan and Tupi-descended peoples in sort of an uncolonized uh, world. It sort of imagines uh, how those 
how those societies would have progressed if there hadn't been the incursion of the Spanish. It's called cool. Shibalba Dreams of the West. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, it's it's very not urban in the way that we may think, but it's still urban. It's still urban in the sense that there are many people living together in many buildings that comprise a city, but the context is extremely different and the people are extremely different and the technology is extremely different. And the way that they interact with the world around them, especially non-human nature, is very, very different as well. And speaks to this sort of alternate um, imagining of the way that people can live in a city, but also be in nature at the same time. So it's not rural, but I don't know that I would call it urban. Oh, no, that sounds very interesting. I will have to, I will have to check that out. Yeah, uh, please do. I mean, I don't, think it's available online, but you can order the book from World Weaver Press. Uh, I will put a link. Um, I found that when it comes to a more image-based medium, such as Tumblr or DeviantArt or what's the other one? Instagram. There we go. Um, I thought you were going to say Pinterest, but never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Pinterest too. I have Is there a solar punk Pinterest? I've never had a Pinterest account. I haven't used Pinterest very often, but I know that you can browse different people's solar punk collections. And within those collections are lots of pictures uh, that reference Ghibli movies. Mm-hmm. That's something that I saw, especially in, in early imaginings of solar punk. They're referenced sort of as solar punk inspiration or proto solar punk, especially Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind which is a place where they derive all of their energy from windmills. It's after the advent, or it's post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's also Castle in the Sky, which is also post-apocalyptic. And we're not really sure where people get their energy, but the people on the ground live in what seems to be little rural communities, little uh, little villages. Uh, there's Princess Mononoke, which has uh, story themes of environmental justice. I wouldn't exactly call it solar punk. It's more of a fairy tale. However, there's a lot of themes that I think uh, solar punks resonate with, as in humans learning to live with nature. And I mean, also the illustrations are just beautiful. And so I see a lot of those pictures referenced as oh, well, this is very solar punk. Um, Also, uh, Ghibli's Kiki's Delivery Service and Howl's Moving Castle really lend to that cottage core aesthetic because they're set in fantastical alternate Europe's. Uh, They move sort of between cobblestone cities that are very old and small towns and cottages in the woods. Everything is extremely human scale and uh, very lived in, but also... Um, seem to have a sense of wonder about the natural world. There's not this idea that humanity or these civilizations have progressed to the point where they are detrimental to the world around them. Yeah, okay. Well, I have to say my solar punk future does not include cobblestone streets because have you ever tried to walk on a cobblestone street? And I don't even mean when it's icy, but (laughs) just in general or drive or bike. (laughs) yeah absolutely horrible they're foul foul things oh but they look so pretty (laughs) no i totally understand (laughs) yeah that um cobblestone cities i mean 
they look very nice in movies. You know, maybe if we're all getting around with using drones or something like that. But until then, there shall be no cobblestone cities in my solar punk future. Until every family, every household has a, what is it, a hoverboard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or mag, mag, maglev shoes or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, but now we're wandering into what is that Back to the Future or something like that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. Uh, back to Solar Punk. Back to Solar Punk. Yeah, I, yeah. I honestly found it very difficult to come up with uh, published examples of rural solar punk, to be honest. I think a lot of time rural stories that could be solar punk are mostly sort of folded into the cli-fi or environmental or other honestly just just other genres uh it might be a ya like romance but it pays a lot of attention to the environment around it and people are living in this interesting fantastical society but the focus is more on the what makes it ya or what makes it a romance and i haven't really encountered a whole lot of solar punk stories well not a lot of long form solar punk stories that are rural per se. It's mostly been a lot of flash fiction that I've encountered on the internet uh, that are inspired by these images. So someone will post a picture of a small cottage and it's raining and there's a candle in the window and uh, underneath it somebody will reply saying it like imagine that you are uh, in this cottage that there's like nobody is demanding your time you can have all the time in the world to rest and relax and be here you have your own chickens and you have your own (laughs) like cats and stuff like that for company but nobody is making you do anything that you don't want to and so the, it will be sort of a, a small snippet of an imagination of like, wouldn't it be great to live in a world where this is possible? Okay. And so, well, I, you know, looking back at our year at Solar Punk Magazine, I'm pretty sure there were several, probably quite a few um, Solar Punk stories um, that were published in the magazine in its first year that were in a rural setting. And I can't think of any titles off the top of my head. I think, uh, yeah off the top of my head. So, so they're definitely there, but it, I mean, do you have to, does solar punk have to reimagine the rural landscape in order to be solar punk, the way it has to reimagine the city? I think so. Definitely. So what does it have to reimagine in a rural setting? I think in a rural setting. Because I'm thinking the, the stories I'm thinking of have a lot to do with celebrations and people relating to each other and people getting over, uh, traumas related to their identities and not being accepted in the past or being discriminated against and this sort of thing. But I, I don't, and perhaps there was even some about solar panels. Um, <laughs> I would have to go back and, and read these stories again. But I don't really feel like there was any that were reimagining rural life. Mm. So much as just kind of imagining it the same way you might imagine it if you're writing about hobbits or if you're writing, you know, right, fantasy or kind of that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the focus of your story. If your story is on, you know, character development or intrapersonal relationships, then the rest of that kind of falls a little bit to the side, especially if it's a short story. I think this is a good place for us to leave it. 
Um, okay. Yeah. And with a plea for people then to go out and write some solar punk stories, imagining yeah. or reimagining or no, just imagining. Um, huh, what's the phrase? Reimagining? That would imply that you've already imagined it. Anyways, reimagining the the rural landscape in the yes, solar planet. Like, amaze me. Convince me that it's okay for me to live out here. I beg yeah. you. <laughs> and I mean, like, you send us some examples of stories. If do you have any favorite rural solar punk stories, please let us know uh, on our Mastodon or Twitter. Just tweet or toot at us. and uh, Or even just give us a little description. Maybe yeah. we'll even read it in a future episode. Who knows? Who yeah. knows? Yeah. So I think that is a wrap. Woo! First episode of season one done. Yay. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate that you're here. Hopefully the more than one person out there who might be listening to this. <laughs> and in case there's only one person, this is for you. Yeah. <laughs> this is for okay. you, listener. <laughs> then uh, until two weeks from now. Yeah. Uh, Stay solar punk. Keep up the good yeah. work and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Stay solar punk story. But I see what you mean. Um, one of the big things that I think would have to be reimagined is the way that agriculture is done um, in terms of farming. Uh, regenerative agriculture is really catching on here, I think, in North America. I mean, it's also known as carbon farming. Um, it's a way to use farmland to rebuild the soil from its degraded uh, state that it's in right now. So is this the same thing as biodynamic farming, which is like one step past organic farming? I don't know. Oh, okay. So it's it's an interesting thing here. I discovered it because in the grocery store, you can buy organic apples and regular apples, organic apples, or you can buy Demeter apples. And Demeter is sort of one of the certifications or one of the companies, or I, I think it's a certification for this biodynamic farming, which is like organic farming, but the focus is really, really, really on yeah, improving the carbon content of the soils and improving the biodiversity of the land around your farm. Yes. And yeah. also there's a bit of mystical woo-woo in there with having to do with how many times you stir the compost pile when the moon is in quarter phase or whatever um, as well. But it actually predates organic farming. And it was developed originally, I think, here in Germany, believe it or not. But oh, I have to admit, the Demeter fresh. apples taste so much better than all the other <laughs> apples. It's really remarkable. I think this is a good place for us to leave it. Um, okay. Yeah. And with a plea for people then to go out and write some solar punk stories, imagining yeah. or reimagining or no, just imagining. Reimagining? That would imply that you've already imagined it. Anyways, reimagining the the rural landscape in the yes, solar planet like amaze me convince me that it's okay for me to live out here i beg yeah. you <laughs> and i mean like you send us some examples of stories if do you have any favorite rural solar punk stories please let us know uh on our mastodon or twitter just tweet or toot at us and uh maybe yeah. we'll even read it in a future episode who knows who yeah. knows yeah so I think that is a wrap. Woo! First episode of season one done. Yay. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate that you're here. Hopefully the more than one person out there who might be listening to this. <laughs> and, in case there's only one person, this is for you. Yeah. <laughs> for okay. You listener. <laughs> then uh, until two weeks from now, stay solar punk, keep up the good yeah. work and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Stay solar punk. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to Solar Punk Presents, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples and in Germany. The opening and closing music of this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Until the next episode, keep dreaming and keep up the good work. <laughs>